we will be going in depth. We will make sure that we plumb the beautiful depths of our brothers and sisters in this time capsule of the early church. Hearts aflame with grace and passion to proclaim the gospel, to preach the kingdom, to share the resurrection with a world that needs to know it. All of that will be our journey, but it will also be our lives as well. As we study the book of Acts, one of the things that has been maybe a, a subject of small conversation or debate is the title of the book. It's, it's often Acts or maybe Acts of the Apostles. But, of course, it's not just the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, it's really God is the hero. It's, it's the Acts of God. It's the Acts of Jesus. It is Luke's second volume. This is Jesus part deux. I mean, this is the, the, the continuing work of the Christ throughout. So many have said, well, maybe we should be called, you know, the acts of Jesus or the acts of God or the acts of the Holy Spirit uh, rather than just the acts of the apostles. And I think all of that is fair game. And perhaps it is the acts of God as empowered by the spirit in the name of Christ by the way of the of the disciples. But it could be any of that. But one thing that doesn't ever vary is that it always is the acts, the action. And it's always about the action. In light of the resurrection, in light of what has just happened, in light of the ascension of Christ, in light of the need to get out the message with hearts filled with compassion for those who need to know it, it's always acts. It's always the action. You notice that it's not the meditations of the apostles. The worship of the apostles. As important as those things are. The contemplations, but the acts, the acts of the early church that is really captured here because it's the only reasonable response to something as momentous as he is risen indeed. Everything that is happening here is under the beautiful light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of what he has done. And as, as we take a look at the Acts of the Apostles, there's this mysterious presence of Jesus that wonderfully haunts the whole story. He's announced as King, he's announced as Lord, but he soon departs from the pages of Acts right after what we'll begin to read this week and next. And after the first few verses, while he's not there, nonetheless, he superintends all of the activity throughout it. And it's a book that is meant to be read at a variety of levels. And, and we should be reading it at least a couple levels. One is, it is the story of the early church. And for sure, it's selective. It's the, you know, done on a highlight reel of the, of the early church. It's, it's not the, the mundane, everyday stories of the church, but the formation stories of the early church. And it captures the early church in a very progressive, linear movement from Jerusalem to Rome. And it is moving from Judaism to all the world, to all the nations. Every tongue, tribe, and creed, every stripe is, is, is going to be reached. And we have this progressive movement through the book of Acts that, that tells this story of the early church. And so, at one level, you're going to be reading, we're all going to be studying this story of the early church. But we're also going to be really reading about what it looks like 
to have the Holy Spirit indwell you and empower you. And we're going to really see what it is, what it really does, does um, describe as the will of God as seen through the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's going to be, I think, one last level that we're meant to read it at. And while Acts begins definitively, it ends abruptly and purposely so because the story is not over. And the last part is that, that we read it with an eye towards ourselves, realizing that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We read it with the recognition that these are our brothers and sisters. We will one day realize in the fullness of time the reality of real fellowship with everyone on these pages. And as, as we embrace them as our brothers and sisters, we likewise are emboldened for what it would look like to have fellowship with them as we go about our day, as, as we live in this day and age where Jesus is the same today and forever as he was yesterday. But now that also brings up a point is as we read the book of Acts, to what degree is it a precedent or is it patternistic for the way that we should do church together? And that's been a big debate. I mean, that's a massive debate throughout church history. How carefully should we study the book of Acts in order to do Jesus the way that we're meant to, or even more specifically, to do church in the way that we should end up doing church? And that's a, a question I think we have to be careful of. And, and I would encourage you to read through the entire book of Acts right away. You even begin your year with a study of the book of Acts. Is I think once you really do have a, a, a great reading of the book of Acts, a complete reading of the book of Acts, you'll see this sweep that occurs and perhaps also realize that the book of Acts, if anything, has agility built into it. They are on the fly making changes of how they do church again and again. They're getting kicked out of one place, running to another, trying it at a river. Let's go with the synagogue. How about the lecture hall of Tyrannus? Hey, how about in public or maybe house to house? Let's do what it is, whatever we can do to just let people know about Jesus. And if you get too caught up in the patternistic reading of this and thinking, ah, they did it that way, so we should do it that way. They did it that way because that was the only way they could do it at the moment, most likely. Keep that in mind. But I think if there's something patternistic about it is the faith, the love, the boldness, the reliance on prayer, the unwavering zeal to be able to really let all know about the resurrected Christ, about the new king, about the, the love that Jesus has for us all. That, I think, is the great takeaway. That's the pattern that we hold on to. That's what it is that energizes us as we really do become more and more that community, that body of Christ that honors what it is that we see here as Luke writes this second volume. So with that in mind, we'll, we'll um, look at the first few verses here as we uh, begin our study in the book of Acts. And, uh, and we'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you that you captured for us through your Holy Spirit, through your servant Luke, through the only Gentile writer of the, of the New Testament, these words for us to be able to really recognize what it looks like when somebody gets it, when they realize that Jesus is risen, risen indeed. What it is that courses through one's blood, 
what it is that is activated and energized within us, what it is to have the empowering and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, thanks to the ascendant Christ, what that looks like as one goes about doing Jesus in their day and age, with, faced with all sorts of persecutions and resistance, and in, even in our day and age, perhaps more subtle, but nonetheless still with resistance and persecutions. Help us to bond together as the body of Christ, to band together, to be enriched together, be informed together, and to be catapulted together into this great study and into this great action. Not the contemplations of this book, but the actions, the acts of this book um, that would really bear witness that the contemplations, the meditations, the considerations, the convictions have all been implanted to us as we've studied and as we live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus. What former book? Well, that's the, that's the, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is the writer. By the way, there is no debate in church history at all as to whether Luke is the writer. It is attested to by all of the early Christians. Some of the famous patristic names that you would know all kind of line up together in one voice that affirms that Luke certainly wrote the gospel. And he also wrote this uh, th this continuation of the gospel. It also shows us that he had designed this to be a two volume set. That this was always designed to be a continuous story of the ministry of Christ that was captured in the gospel. And then what happens as a result of that? And Theophilus uh, is, Theo is God, Philos, loved. It's either one loved by God or a lover of God. It probably was either a patron, but one way or another, it could either be a, a placeholder for people who are loved by God receiving this or people that love God. Uh, or it could actually be a, a very real person that he's writing to. Either way, it is captured by the Holy Spirit for its universal application for all of us. In the first volume, he said, I considered it rather important to capture in a very concrete and organized manner all of the activity that went on with Jesus. And so he did. What's interesting is when Luke begins his gospel, which we studied this out about three years ago as we began the study of Luke, we saw that he begins the introduction with very formal Greek. Technically, it would be called Attic Greek or Classic Greek. And after the formal introduction, he then gets down home with Koine Greek, with, with Street Greek. He does the same thing here, which also points to the fact that these two do really do go together. Uh, between Luke and Acts, he makes up about one quarter of the entire New Testament. So Luke is the only Gentile writer. But even for a Gentile writer, take note of this, that what he writes is absolutely steeped in a knowledge of the Old Testament. He quotes it again and again. A Gentile quotes it again and again and again. And to even recognize that even we Gentiles that, that come to the faith benefit greatly from immersing ourselves in the mindset, the mind thought of those that would have known the, the Old Testament as well as I could quote those lines from Trading Places. Right? That, that, that we, would, we would just have that ready, that that informs our conscience. Uh, it informs the, the way that we understand the world and our, our worldview. Uh, that, that is the, 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 um, the people that we're reading about here. And Luke gets that, and he joins them, and in joining them, the scriptures at that point are the Old Testament. Um, and so for us, it is a call to really understand the Old Testament well, because it is the New Testament concealed, 
as the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In my former book, Theophilus, that's as far as I've gotten, I wrote about all, come on, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. I love that he writes it that way. He didn't say, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus, and this is very purposeful language, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, he was just getting started. And even now, even here, as he writes this, he continues in this descriptor of Jesus that he's only just begun. And as he's only just begun, he continues to do and to teach. And he will through this entire book of Acts. And Jesus, through all that you do and all that you share and all the difference that you make, we as the body of Christ, through us as the body of Christ, Jesus continues to do and to teach. That's our honor. And in Fused with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as he's called even in the book of Acts. Infused with the Spirit of Christ, Jesus continues to do and to teach through us, through them. What an honor. Until the day he was taken up to heaven. That'll be discussed a little bit more in, uh, down until chapter, chapter 1, verse 11. We will study next week in great detail all the implications of the ascension of Christ. It's a fascinating study, the ascension of Christ. It, it means so very much to the church. Uh, but we will we'll look at that then. Until he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. In verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them. The word presented himself uh, is the idea of providing conclusive, concrete proof of something. So this is a very technical term that Luke is using here. That after Jesus's passion, his suffering, his death burial, he presented himself to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Wow, that's a lot in one verse. In that one verse, we have Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and even the ascension that is, that is um, about to occur here. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And so as, as we begin to study, my, my, my first point is, because he begins it with this, how is it that these men, these ragtag fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, these gang of, of rivals, gang of doubters, could suddenly be so beautifully blossomed and transformed into world changers? Because it is what they do. Because from this point forward, they are scattered and deployed strategically by the Holy Spirit to change the entire world. And, and thus they do. How is it that that could be the case when we see them stumbling, bumbling all over themselves in, in ways that are almost comical, if it not the, the fact that there was so much on the line?
How is it that all of that could be the case? Here's why all of that changed. Why that little group of unsuspecting world changers would become what they were is because Jesus resurrected. They saw it. They knew it. There was no denying it. And having experienced it, there was no way they could do anything but bring it and bring it with all they had. And so my first point today is Jesus woke. That on the third day, Jesus woke. He rose. The tomb is empty. The tomb is still empty. Go there. Check it out. Nothing there. Uh, as it was for all of them. They ran to the tomb. One a little bit faster than the other, by the way. They ran to the tomb. They saw the contents of the tomb. And all there was, was just some neatly folded up bedding. By the way, it's a good lesson for you all to make your bed in the morning. <laughs> Jesus was never going to use that bed again, but he made it. <laughs> empty, empty tomb. That's a big deal. That's a radically big deal. Why? Because that event struck a blow to the very root of their worldview. There was nothing in their worldview that would suggest that anyone would rise from the dead other than at the resurrection at the end of time. And if anyone did so prior to that, and maybe they could contemplate the idea of someone rising Towards a spiritual reality. But never. Someone who is dead. To rise to new life. Still have a physical body. And ascend. As as Jesus did. This changed everything. That if Jesus rose from the dead. Then all bets are off. Everything changes. And you're going to have to come to grips. With that very real fact. And Luke makes it such an important point. To begin this book. This is what empowered and impelled them. After the suffering, he presented himself to them. That's a big deal. And gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. There were many convincing proofs that he was dead. Under the expert eye of the, the, the Roman legionnaires, of the Roman soldiers that knew exactly as it was their expert business. They were subject matter experts on when someone died. It was very, very clear that that was very much the case of Christ. And yet, here he is alive to them for 40 days presenting himself. Maybe not like 40 days, 24 hours a day, but definitely interceding into their lives. We know biblically at least 10 different episodes where Jesus came and interacted with this group after his resurrection. That's a big deal. That changes somebody. That radically rips apart the worldview that you had taken comfort in. A worldview is a very important thing. It's, it's something that we all have, even if you don't admit to it or not. It is a way by which you make sense of everything. It's the way that you answer the big questions of life. It is a way that gives you comfort that no matter what comes your way, you have this operating system. You have this mechanism that makes sense of all things. Uh, the Germans, I think, I don't know if I pronounce it right. The Germans call it a, a Weltanschauung. It is a, 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 a way of understanding everything in the world as it pertains to you, as it pertains to everyone else. 
It's the meaning of life. It's the game. It's the rules by which you play the game of life. And it is a very stable thing. A very, very stable thing. That's why it's sometimes very hard to get someone to change their point of view on things. Let's just use the American political system for a moment. You could have someone who is absolutely crazy. I mean, cuckoo, cuckoo. And rises to be the leader of your party. And you'll still stay in that party. Right? No matter what convincing proofs are there. Why? Because your worldview is so entrenched that if there is an anomaly of information that comes to you in that worldview, what you tend to do is screen it out. And you only really listen to things that are affirming to your worldview. It's confirmation bias is another way of putting it. Is that you're just looking for things that already confirm your worldview. Why, why do you have that confirmation bias? Because it's very comfort- comforting. Who wants to have your entire system of thought upended day after day? Nobody really does. We like the, the, the homeostasis, the set point, the comfort point of having things settled once and for all so that I don't have to go through the whole exercise of epistemology. How do I know what I know? Do I really understand all of these things? But yet Jesus wants to confront us all at the level of our worldview. There is nothing in anyone's worldview in the book of Acts that already was receptive to the idea of a resurrection of the dead. The Greeks, Stoicism, there was a kind of an age to come. But you know what happened to you all? They really saw the idea that matter was bad and that spirit was good and that you all were subsumed up into some great flame of spirit in Stoicism. That was their idea. Yes, there, there was some sort of transformation, but never did you maintain a body. Never did you go from dead to alive in that body. And yet that's what Jesus did. And that was the unreceptive audience. That was the worldview with filters up, shields up. Everywhere that these disciples went, shields up to that worldview that they were trying to bring to them. Nothing in any of the cultures, in any of the communities, ever was already looking towards the idea of a resurrected Jesus Christ. And then that that person to be king, and then even more difficult for the Jews, that person to be God. If there was one religion on the face of the earth that resisted, if not condemned as heresy from hell, the, the idea that God could be man in human flesh, it was Judaism. And yet that's the incubator for all of this. How could that be? It's because Jesus is able to attack us at our presuppositions, at the level of our worldview, the paradigm, the model that we use for making sense of all things. There was a famous book, well, maybe not so famous, um, by Thomas Kuhn called uh, A Theory of, of Scientific Revolution. And in that book, he introduces the term paradigm and paradigm shift. We hear the term paradigm shift a lot. Consultants like to use it all the time, overuse it really. Uh, if you are in any sort of uh, corporate uh, entity, you're always talking about paradigm shifts. But, but nonetheless, it, it comes from this book by Thomas Kuhn. He used the illustration of the Ptolemaic idea of the solar system. And in that idea, the earth was at the center of the solar system, also known as the geocentric model of the solar system. That was the paradigm that all scientists used. The earth was the center of everything. Everything revolved around us. And 
some people still have that metaphorically. <laughs> and yet, when Copernicus made the very clear discovery that, you know what, all of these equations would be so much simpler if we just recognize that perhaps we're not at the center of all things. And we wouldn't have to have these models with all of these wildness going on. Even the word planet comes from planeo, means to wander. You know, all of the planets had, had these wild paths on all of the geocentric models. And this paradigm was very complex, but it was a comfort one because it was familiar. So when Copernicus, Polish, maybe a little bit Lithuanian, I like to think of him as Lithuanian, uh, came with the great insight of the heliocentric or the sun-centered solar system, it was resisted, even though his model was so elegant. Look, here's the sun, here's the planets, concentric circles, I'm done. Thank you, drop the mic. But, but nobody accepted it. Nobody accepted it. Why? Because they were stuck in their paradigms. And there was confirmation bias. And it, it, it actually assaulted them at the level where they lived. And now for us, we've got to recognize this is what Jesus wants to do. When, when he gave the charge back in Luke 24, you know, Luke, Luke has a bit of an overlap. Turn back, keep your finger here. Go back to Luke 24 for a second. Jesus in his resurrection appearances spends some time blowing the minds of the disciples. There's these beautiful paradigm shifts. There's these beautiful worldview assaults that occur poof, as he uh, reads to them from the scriptures. They, they even say to one another in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us as he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself? But then mo moving on to, to where I want to get to in verse 45, then he opened their minds. So they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Mind blowing. And get this. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is exactly what will be repeated over in Acts chapter 1. But what won't exactly be repeated is this charge. Now go, go into all nations and blow their minds. Preach repentance. Metanoia. Meta, a metamorphosis. An absolute crushing destruction of their old paradigm, their old noia, their old worldview. Meta change noia worldview. That's what repentance is. Amen. Repentance is an absolute upheaval of someone's worldview where they have to pick up all the pieces again and make sense of it all. Now with the idea that Jesus is Lord and he's given many convincing proofs of it by rising from the dead. Jesus woke and that's a big deal. Jesus is woke. That's an astounding deal that this is the reality that they all knew. And Jesus says, you see this. You're the ones who see this. Now go get them. Let everybody know. And those that did not see, Jesus says, are even more blessed. Because he will provide evidence to it by his witnesses and by the scriptures. And maybe as you're sitting here, you say, well, maybe if I had seen it. Maybe if you know, I'd have, you know Jesus actually l lets us know that. You know what? There's one other very convincing proof that is not given here. 
Because this book ends in the early 60s. And something happens. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see the first martyrdom. And that of Stephen. Why does Stephen die? He dies for the cause of the kingdom of God. For the cause of Christ. He dies preaching that Jesus woke. He's ascended to the right hand of God. No one dies for a lie. If indeed there really wasn't a resurrection of Jesus and these guys just conspired and said, hey, let's kind of, you know, make a bar bet here. Let's, uh, let, let's come up with something that maybe will inspire the, the troops. Sure, they're bummed that Jesus didn't rise, but let's say that he did. Right? Let's just say if that happened. Well, something that nobody ever does. People die for their religion, but they don't die for their religion if they know it's a lie. If they're the founder of it and they know it's a lie, no one's ever died. Sure, people are zealous and they, and they die for religion, but they believe it's true. But if, if these guys were the architects of a farce, well, and, the, and by the way, it's not just Stephen, but because this book of Acts will end right as Nero is coming into his full-blown craziness, we won't see in the book of Acts the death of Peter, the death of Paul, the martyrdom of Matthew, the martyrdom of Luke. The martyrdom of Mark. Bartholomew skinned alive. We won't see any of that. Because the book ends. And we're given one more incredible convincing proof. The acts of these apostles. Amen. The acts of these witnesses. These witnesses are such reliable witnesses. That they die. For the very message that they bring. Every one of them died. Every one of them died. Except John who lived to an old age. But even he was persecuted to the point of, of exile. To an uh, island in Patmos. But all of them had their lives. Completely disrupted. In the worst of all ways. Why? Because they held to the truth. They held to the message. They with zeal proclaimed the message. That all need to know. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. All bets are off. This is incredibly important. And since Jesus is woke and he has appeared, well then, we need to get woke. Everybody needs to get woke. Get woke to this very real idea that Jesus came to completely disrupt the way that we understand life and the way that we live life. Completely disrupt it. It, it is why that he says that go, go and preach this. And when you do, make sure that it is identified by metanoia, by repentance, which will then bring them to this place where they'll come to forgiveness of sins. But there's no way to that unless you help them be absolutely affected at the worldview level. But it's too easy to think about Jesus in a Christian nation. And here's how a lot of people think of it. You know, I've got this life of mine and, you know, I like to think of my life as like pieces of the pie. And there's a piece of the pie for family. That sounds nice. A piece of the pie for work. And of course, that's to, you know, provide for the family. And then there's a, a piece of the pie for like personal development. And yes, it is January 1st. I need to lose 11 pounds. So that goes into that pie. I don't eat that pie. I just recognize that as a piece of the pie that represents that area of my life that I need to work on. And then there's this piece of the pie that I call 
religion or God or Jesus. And, and, and this is the way most people really, really make sense of this. Is that, you know what? Maybe if I'm going to have this encounter with Jesus, maybe the Jesus sliver of the pie needs to be more than me just kind of sort of showing up on Sunday morning. Maybe more than me just kind of sort of reading a verse or two in the morning. Maybe it needs to become more than a sliver and that I make Jesus a little bit bigger piece of the pie. That's not repentance. That's not being affected and upended at the worldview level. Jesus is not a piece of the pie. He's the baker. He owns the bakery. He made all the pies. All the pies are his. All the pieces of the pie are courtesy of Jesus Christ. There's no, oh, I'll give you a piece of the pie. It's his pie. I get that, that's the kind of the mind-blowing reality that needs to hit us as we are encountered by Jesus through the scriptures, through the convicting work of his Holy Spirit. Is that this is not the way that I'm going to go about, I don't know, becoming more self-actualized is to increase the portion of my pie that is Christ. That's the way that I tried to get to Christ for many, many years. Decades, really, is making little efforts, usually around January 1st, of making Jesus a bigger piece of the pie. But it wasn't until I was confronted at the worldview level, at the metanoia level, with the idea that Jesus really rose from the dead. And if he did, then there are big implications to that. That means that there is a life after death. That there is a judgment. That this life is just a breath, just a whisper, just a shadow compared to the reality of everlasting life. Am I just living for the here and now or with a myopic view of just this? Or am I really living for the age to come? Do I really get it? A good little exercise to take as you contemplate the resurrection and let it affect you at the worldview is you ask three questions about it. What else? So what? Now what? In other words, you, you, you read about the resurrection. You understand the resurrection of Christ. You understand that he is risen indeed. What else? What else is said about that? What else should I consider about that? And then after having considered all the beautiful facets of the resurrection of Christ, on every one of those, ask yourself, so what? So what? What's the implication of that? You know what the implication is? I'm going to stand before the judgment seat. And then if I try and do that, based on my traditions of Christianity versus the Bible clarity of Christianity, holy smokes, there's going to be some smoke. And I'm going to be in the smoking section. Right? The, the so what implications are massive. And then the final thing is once I have all of that together, now what? Now what? I don't just kind of consider it and say, wow, I'm glad I came to that conclusion. Now what? Well, now I, I you know what? I, I sit down, I study the Bible. Probably be helpful to me have somebody else in there. I know what I do when I'm left to my own devices. I try to go to the path of least resistance. It'd be helpful to have somebody else there that's going to help me to really look and consider the, the clarity of the scriptures themselves. But if you want to get woke, if you want this to really be the activity of your life, if you want to know what the joy, the exaltation, the enthusiasm of being in alignment with Jesus' very will for your life, the reason why when he rose from the dead that he did all of this for you, what it is that he wants for you, my goodness, do not shortchange a deep contemplation which results in amazing action. By the way, it's interesting that when we read the book of Acts, 
Well, let me give another example. You ever notice that there are no popular TV shows of a show in which you turn it on, and as you turn it on, what you see is a family all sitting around their living room watching a TV show. Right? A family like that is not really interesting. It's not really worth watching. But a family that does stuff and has activities and kind of, you know, turmoil and intrigue and resolution, all that, 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 those are the shows we watch. But we don't watch TV shows of families just watching families. You notice also when we read the book of Acts, we don't just read about disciples just sitting around coffee shops reading their Bibles. As important as that is, and of course we do that, but if that's all that is the, your understanding of what it is to be a Christian, whoa, you're watching a TV show, but family watching a TV show. Nobody's going to want to watch that show. Nobody's going to want to be compelled by your life in Christ. If all it is, is coming here, sitting around, and, and, and just sitting around looking at the Bible and throwing up some prayers. Again, those are wonderful things. It's our devotion to the Lord. It's one, but, but what I'm saying is that that should lead to something that really does look like Jesus' will for you. So that the story continues on in you. As we consider the convincing proofs that Jesus gives, those convincing proofs are airtight. There's no other explanation for why it is that the church would, would blossom to overtake the Roman Empire itself. Why it would eclipse the Judaism from which it was birthed. How it is that all of that could happen in such short order. The only explanation is, he really rose. And they understood the implications. They allowed it to affect them at their worldview level. But let me, right now, there's probably a lot of you sitting here that have a worldview that you think is very much a Jesus worldview. Or, let's say, a kingdom view. Right? Because that's what, that is what he did. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. When you really do change your worldview, it goes from being a worldview to a kingdom view. Everything is really informed by the kingdom of God. There is a, a layer of dominion and sovereignty over all of this that really does guide and superintend this. That is the kingdom of God. And sure, we're making our way through this reality, but all of it is, is, is really uh, under the auspices of the kingdom of God. And if you do not really have a kingdom view, you're not really living in alignment with Jesus wants for your life. If Jesus is Lord, is not the banner that is your compass setting that guides you through every decision that you make, well then, I am Lord is still your compass setting. With Jesus thrown in to make you feel better about yourself at key moments. Maybe to feel more secure. Maybe to have the insurance policy. Maybe to be known as a good guy or good gal. But it is not that that whole thing has been upended. And let me encourage you. If you in any way do not feel as though you are living out a kingdom view. That you're not making sense of all things through the kingdom of God. That Jesus as Lord is not the banner over the direction of your life. My goodness. Don't head into this study of the book of Acts without grabbing somebody today to really say, you know what? Jesus woke. It's time for me to get woke. Amen. Yeah. And then really just a final charge here. Stay woke. I predict now that a 54-year-old white man has used that phrase this much, it will no longer be a hashtag for anything hip ever again. 
I've ruined it. You're welcome. <laughs> Stay woke. Jesus is the same for us as he was for them. Jesus began to do and to teach, but he continues to do that in us. We're going to spend this year, I pray, becoming closer and closer as a community, as the body of Christ, to really go about being Jesus to Hampton Roads. And that's what it means to be woke, to stay woke. We're going to really take a hard look at how grace sets our hearts aflame to live with the same sacrificial enthusiasm that our brothers and sisters lived on these pages. We're going to understand the depth of what it really looked like for Christ to give his all so that we could have all. Again and again on these pages, I know in the past we've looked at the book of Acts and it's been about duty and glory for ourselves. This year, we're going to take a hard look at it. It will always begin with Jesus woke. And it will always end with our action. With our action. Born not out of guilt or a sense of duty, but born out of hearts set aflame by what Jesus has done for us. Reminding one another every single day what it is that we have. We few, we lucky few, we band of brothers, we band of sisters. And as we move forward this year, let it be the year where people begin to recognize, wow, I think I'm starting to see that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because they see Jesus, the spirit of Christ, a community moved by Christ in all of us. Amen. We break to fellowship.